0: Well, today we're looking at a particular mystery. It's the mystery of the confusing sign. The mystery of the confusing sign. I don't know if you've ever come across a sign in the street or in a store uh, that's a little bit confusing. I uh, Here's some pictures of some that I found on my world travels across the internet superhighway. Uh, signs may be confusing because uh, they seem contradictory. Uh, Like this one here, there you go. Antique tables made daily. Uh, That's kind of interesting. Uh, Or what about this one here? Elevator out of service. Please use the elevator. Um, What do you do with that? I mean, uh, is there a different elevator? Or maybe you're meant to use it for something else, have a picnic in the elevator? Uh, Sometimes the sign might be confusing because there's there's just too much going on uh, and it's a bit overwhelming. Like this one. (laughs) Man. Especially when you read the bit in the middle, right? Good luck. <laughs> Come on, hang on. That's a confusing sign for all bunch. Uh, how do you know which way to go? How are you going to get there? Uh, I don't know. I don't know why it's to say you know, Edinburgh or whatever it is. But anyway, uh, sometimes uh, signs might be like this. There you go. <laughs> right lane, must, right left. Um, what? Like, it doesn't even make any sense. Uh, sometimes they seem a little bit redundant and you wonder why on earth... They were there to start with. Oh, sorry, that's another one that's a bit confusing. Uh, which, which way do you go? <laughs> um, you come to that and you're like, okay, I, I, uh, <laughs> I'm just stuck. I've got to go up. <laughs> Maybe I need a helicopter airlift out or something. But sometimes they're just sort of a little bit redundant. and You think, why is that sign there in the first place? <laughs> We'd all have been perfectly safe had that sign not existed. Although if you do, if you can see in little writing at the bottom it says, also the bridge is out ahead. Anyway, so there is a reason for that one. Anyway, <laughs> uh, I think that's all I've got. So it's funny when it's a photo and you think, oh, we can have a good laugh at that. But, but they're not so funny if you drove up to one of those signs and you're, you're wondering what to do next or you're wondering where to go or what's it all about? What's it telling me? It's disorienting. Now maybe you feel disorientated most of the time. Anyway, I mean that's that's just some people's stage in life. I feel disorientated when I walk in the house, especially when I go, Keys, I just walked in with them and ah, they're probably still hanging in the door. That's that's often. But but confusing signs can be very disorienting. In John chapter two, we're told that Jesus did his first sign. It was the first sign that he did. Uh, you'd think that would be a really important one, wouldn't you? The first sign, uh, the first indicator, the first sign of just who this man was. And yet when you stop and really look at it, if you're anything like me, you think, well, it's a little bit confusing. It's a bit disorienting. What's it What's it really all about? What's it signifying? Because signs are supposed to signify something. What do they point to? Uh, uh, but with this first sign of Jesus, it's just a bit tricky to figure out. It's disorienting. A man went to a wedding. Nothing unusual about that. He helped out. The the, uh, the guys who were in a bit of trouble because there was a bit of embarrassment about the running out of the line. Uh Yes, we're told he did it miraculously, but then hardly anyone knew it was a miracle anyway because it was only the couple of people at his table and the wait staff who, who even realised something had happened. Uh, and... That's the launch of Jesus' whole ministry. He's on the scene now. This is the first sign of it. And it's disorienting. It's disorienting for lots of reasons. It's disorienting because of where the miracle takes place. It all happened in Cana of Galilee, which is famous for having a wedding where water was turned into wine, isn't it? That's the only thing that's ever happened there. Uh, It's a little bit like the band Daft Punk. Anyone cool and own a Daft Punk album? Uh, there you go. Oh, yeah. We're all hip on stuff here. Uh, <laughs> uh, B- Daft Punk, if you don't know them, they're a very bizarre uh, French electronic rock group uh, made up of two French men. There you go. Uh, and so that's going to be very strange. Anyway, uh, if you're not hip and young uh, like me, you may not know that they're actually quite famous. In fact, they, have, uh, a, a, they had one of the records uh, for the highest selling single of all time, uh, for a little while, a couple of years ago. Uh, it was from their album, Random Access Memories, which is their fourth studio album. And so here's this famous uh, French band. Where did they launch that album? In 2013. In May 2013, they launched Random Access Memories of all places at the 79th annual show at Wee War. <laughs> We War, good old Wee War, there in country New stuff this French, internationally famous, anticipated album. Everyone's ready for it. It's going to have the highest. Launched at We War annual show, uh, and for a week or so, the whole world was focused on We War, of all places. Uh, and uh, when the manager was asked, "Well, why that place? Why? Why did you launch it there in the backwaters of Australia? This this internationally anticipated album?" And he said, "Well." It just appealed to us because of the disorientation of the whole thing. Disorienting. And that's what it's like here in John. Jesus revealed his glory, his first sign, not in the urban centres, not in the middle of everyone, but in Cana, in Galilee, in the north. It's hillbilly country. Uh, that's the disorientation. If he's going to reveal his glory, he's going to reveal the weightiness of his character, demonstrate that he's God become man in some way. Why go? to Cana to do it. But it's also disorienting because of when it took place, it happened at this wedding, at somebody else's wedding. Now, we're not even told who the happy couple were. Uh, the bride doesn't even get a mention in the story. I assume she was there. Uh, <laughs> but Jesus and his mum and some of his earliest followers who we, we met last week in the end of chapter one, they were all guests at this wedding. And weddings just like now, in fact, even even more than now, they're even bigger do you think, your children's wedding. Is going to bankrupt you? Well, your feast only lasts for a night. Their feast could last for up to a week. You've got to complete, you know, um, give everyone, provide everyone with food and liquor for a whole week. Um, that'd be an expensive process uh, for a big one. Uh, and the bride and groom, they'd be treated like a king and a queen and there'd be these days and days of feasting and drinking and yet due to this particularly awkward moment, the wait, uh, um, for the waitstaff, Jesus is going to steal the show. Seems a bit of a social faux pas, don't you think? Yeah? Uh, why is he the star? Though, though it does save the groom from this social embarrassment. But it's disowning for a third reason. It's disheartening because Jesus seems so reluctant to do it. You notice that? You know, he ends up doing the sign, but you read the first bit. Hang on, chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Uh. Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. Uh, he's not just saying, you know, what do you want me to do, mum? Yeah. <laughs> it's not even, it's not our problem, mum. Just you know, let him suffer, yeah, kind of thing. He's, it's more that he's kind of rebuking mum. It's kind of like a whingy teenager almost, isn't it? Mum, it's not, it's not time yet. It's not, my hour's not yet come. And yet, like mum's down through the centuries, uh, she's not going to take no for an answer. And so Jesus does step in and save the day. It's it's weird, okay? Why why not just do if he's going to do it anyway, just say okay? But then it's disorienting because it's such a bizarre kind of miracle. Of all the miracles of Jesus, well, this is well it's so mundane, you know. It's almost more of a party trick. It's a it's a cool chemistry experiment, isn't it? Just kind of you know get the beakers and whoo, you know, kind of and stuff happens, poof, you know? and it's not even that exciting. No one even sees the trick happen. It's not feeding the needy. It's not healing the sick. It's, a, it's not like all the wedding guests were sick and they needed a little wine for their stomach like uh, Timothy later on in the Bible. It's, I mean, the guests have already drunk so much that they're not even aware that it's good stuff that they're getting now. They don't need it anymore. Um, Dad, they're, they're not even going to be aware of where it's from or that Jesus did it anyway. And there's so much of it. I mean, I worked it out, six jars containing 20 to 30 gallons. That's between 75 and 115 litres each. Let's call it 100 litres for the sake of calculation. There's six of them. That's 600 litres uh, of wine. Uh, So I went down the bottle to figure it out just to see what is 600 litres of wine. It's 800 bottles of wine. There you go. That's a lot of plonk, right? And... It's not just any old plonk. This is not your $10 unlabeled shardy. This is the top-notch, finest quality, mature, best-selling kind of wine. It's, it's the Bollinger Champagne kind of level of stuff. Uh, and and not one of the guests is going to notice because they're so drunk. Right? <laughs> there's Yeah. more to be, you know? <laughs> yeah. Only the head waiter knows, and only the wait staff know how it came to be there and a couple of Jesus friends who are sitting there with him. And finally, I think it's disorienting because of what happens next. For this is the launch of Jesus' ministry on the national stage and he's going to go from here, spend a couple of days in Capernaum on his way to Jerusalem where it's going to be on for young and old. And it's going to, whoa, you know, he's going to be doing miracles and signs all over the place. But the first thing he does when he arrives in Jerusalem with the gang is cause a huge stink in the religious heart of the nation right in the middle of the temple where people have come to pray and do their business with God and have their sins dealt with, to be purified by God. And he's going to come in and wreck it. You know, just wanders in, makes a whip, so he's pretty prepared, comes in, trashes the tables, the money's going everywhere. You know, he's opening the cages of all the animals and they're scattering around. He's driving them all out with his whip uh, and you know, turning stuff over. It's, it's disruptive. He's tearing at the religious fabric of the nation. And even by the end of the chapter, he's threatening to tear down the temple and rebuild it again in three days. And look what happens right at the end. Chapter 2 and verse 23. What's the result of all this? Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs that he was doing and believed in his name. That sounds great, doesn't it? All these people that believe because of all these signs. But look at verse 24. There's a huge issue with that. A warning even. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them. Oh, yeah, this is great. We believe in you. He would not entrust himself to them for he knew all men. He didn't need man's testimony about man for he knew what was in a man. Now, we'll think harder on that next week, but it's a very strange couple of sentences to end this chapter. Uh, Verse 23, people are going to quote freely. Verses 24 and 25, most people ignore. But what it's suggesting at the very least And what Jesus knows is that when people believe in him because they see miracles, they don't actually believe. That's a startling thing. Jesus does not do these miracles so that people will follow him because people following him on the basis of some mighty miracle are people who haven't understood anything yet. They haven't understood the sign, what it's pointing to, the significance. You know, they've just... Impressed by magic shows. They love the tricks but they've missed the significance. They haven't understood yet because they are signs of something else. To see the sign but to not understand what the sign points to, what it signifies is to remain blind, is to be in darkness. You have to see where the sign is pointing. So what's going on? Why is this the first sign of Jesus' glory in Cana of Galilee? What's it pointing to? What's it about? What have we missed? That's the mystery. How do you see the glory of God in water being turned into wine at this wedding? Well, there's an answer. There's a key to to unlocking the mystery and it's in the text, to understanding what the sign's all about, what it's pointing to. And the key is seen, if you take special note, of the curious comment in verse 6. See it there? In verse 6. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding twenty to thirty gallons. It's an otherwise unnecessary comment. It's, you know, in, in an account with so little attention to detail, all of a sudden. He describes what kind of jars these are happened to be standing in the corner. He didn't have to describe, there's no other detail about the wedding, there's no there's no mention of the bride's dress. I mean, surely that's the most important detail of the whole thing, right? Or what the colours that were chosen were, or the flowers that were picked, uh, kind of thing. You know, uh, or it's not even mentioned whose wedding it was. Why does it matter what kind of jars Jesus used? And, and why does he need jars anyway? Couldn't he have just turned the whole well into wine and just served it straight from there if he'd wanted to? Why these jars? And how does filling them with the wine, the best wine, reveal his glory? Well, to figure that out, I want you to come back with me a page. We're going to do a little bit of work here. Come back to the introduction of John's Gospel. We were looking at it a couple of weeks ago, but the introduction is all about how Jesus is God become man. That's that's what he tells us in the intro, and, then, and he's saying that's what this book's about, the God, God who's become man, that's Jesus. But you get to verse 14, and he says this, the Word, and by that he means Jesus, uh, Jesus who's God who created everything. Uh, he's already said that earlier. He says the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That is, the creator of the universe showed up as a human being. It came as a man. And he says, we've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And it's that last phrase that's so significant. How do you see the glory of God? Where do you see the glory of God? How would you know if you were looking at it? What is the glory of Jesus? Well, it's seen in his character, in what he is like, in his character of grace and his truth. So the glory of God is not primarily seen in his beauty or in his power, or in his wealth, although he's got all those in spades. It's seen on the one hand in his grace, in his, in other words, his mercy, his generosity, his loving kindness, the Bible sometimes puts it. And on the other hand, it's seen in his faithfulness, his dependability, his reliability. That's what it means by truth there. That's what it means by grace and truth. And that, he says, is what God's glory is, and that is what we've seen when God showed up on earth as Jesus. But John goes on a couple of verses later to clarify things in a very specific way that we didn't look at two weeks ago. Verse 16. From the fullness of his grace, we've all received one blessing after another. And that sounds fantastic, doesn't it? You know, blessing upon blessing, one blessing after another. And that's what you get with Jesus. And at one level, that's true. Yeah, Jesus does shower us with his blessing, but that's not what John means here. Uh, It's quite clear in the original, and that's an okay translation. Um, But he's saying that in Jesus, we've received one particular blessing that has replaced another blessing. Another particular blessing. It's a blessing after another blessing. It's a blessing that replaces a blessing. That's what it means by blessing after blessing. It's a specific blessing that comes after this different blessing. And that's why in verse 17 it starts with the word for or the word because. You know, when you see a for or therefore, you've got to ask what's it there for uh, kind of thing because it's it's joining sentences together. It's explaining things, okay? Uh, that is what verse 17 is, is explaining verse 16. It doesn't make any sense without it. From the fullness of Jesus' grace, we've all received a blessing which replaces a blessing for, because the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only who's at the Father's side, has made him known. See, what is the blessing, what is the thing that Jesus has replaced? Well, it's the law. That's exactly right. That's the law. I'm glad you can see it too. It's the law of Moses. It's the Old Testament law. Uh, that's, that's what Jesus has come to do and, and replace with another blessing. And, and be sure, the Old Testament law is a great blessing because the law is all about how to be right with God. It laid out the kind of life that God uh, is, uh, finds pleasing in all kinds of moral statutes and regulations about love and hate, about murder and theft, about sexuality uh, and fraud and, and the way you treat other people. And it all, it all still holds this is what God thinks is the, good, is the good life, the moral life, the right life. And especially detailed how, how is you're supposed to relate to God himself? You shall have no other gods but him. You shall not worship other things as if they're God. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. You're not to make idols. You're not to worship anything other than him. And and when you do worship God, you've got to do it in the way that he says, that he specifies. You can't just make it up. You've got to do it his way. And if you kept that law completely, you would be absolutely righteous in God's sight. There would be no problem between you and God. But there is a problem, isn't there? There always was and there still is and there always will be and that is that no one can actually keep it. It's impossible. You you fail at one little thing and you've broken the law. You're a lawbreaker in God's sight. And you say, oh, well, I haven't murdered anyone. Yeah, but have you... Committed adultery, or at least in your heart, have you have you ever lied to anyone? If you can answer yes, you're a lawbreaker. You know, and you you're not right with God. No one has ever been able to do it, and the law of Moses itself acknowledged that. And so, at the same time as saying, well, here is the the righteous life that if you do it all, you'll be right with God. At the same time, it says you're going to fail and you're going to fail regularly and sometimes you'll fail spectacularly and you're going to be under God's condemnation. And so the law of Moses provided a whole other component to it, a whole other section, the the rites and the ceremonies of Israel, the ceremonial law, it's often called, with with temples and priests and washings and and most important of all was the animal sacrifices that had to be made. See, what happened when you became aware that, that you... Had committed a sin that you've broken the law. When you know, maybe it was pointed out to you by someone else. Maybe you were aware of it yourself as you were doing it. Maybe you became aware of it later. You thought, Ah, oh, if I've been thinking straight, you know, kind of. You find yourself in a predicament because the law says you are guilty, uh, and God is going to cut you off from Him and from His people God takes sin that seriously. But what happened was that in the mercy of God, He provided a way of forgiveness. And what you had to do was take a one-year-old animal, one that was without defect in any way, preferably one that you'd grown yourself, although you could buy one at the temple if you, had, if you had the money and that's why there are temple money changes there and animals in cages to be bought later on. But it might be a dove, it might be a lamb or a goat, it might be a bull and it all depended on, on which pay scale you were on, what, how rich you were. If you were poor, you poured a dove. If you were rich, super rich, you bought a bull. And it's all detailed in the law of God, which sacrifice for what sin and when uh, and what level and things. And, and you brought this animal to the temple. And there at the temple, what would happen is you would give your animal to the priest. And the priest would put his hand on the head of the animal. symbolise the transfer of guilt from you onto this creature. And you know what he'd do with it? all of its blood into a bowl and then he picks up the bowl and he starts spraying the blood around over the altar and around on the ground and around the walls and it's it's gory stuff and you can read all the details if you want to in the book of leviticus and it all took place at the temple which is where god symbolically dwelled with his people and and as this sacrifice was happening there where god dwelled What was happening was God's wrath against you for being a lawbreaker was being turned away by the sacrifice and by the priest doing the sacrifice at the temple. The wrath of God, the punishment was all poured out onto the the beast, the creature, as it died so that you wouldn't have to. And it was all set up to show you how seriously God viewed sin And how if there was to be true forgiveness from God, then something else or someone else would need to die in your place. Because as the Bible keeps insisting, the wages of sin, he's not just getting kicked out of the country of Israel. The wages of sin is death. Why is it death? Well, what do you expect when you tell the author of life to sod off? The guy who gave you life, you think, I don't care what he says. (laughs) It's death, it makes sense. And yet in the sacrifice of Israel, an animal could die in your place so that you could be free, your sin taken away. And yet that whole system which was set up to show these incredible, wonderful things which is a great blessing from God, Uh, by which there was some measure of hope that people could be right with him. It never, ever, it never once worked. The sacrifices which took place day after day never dealt with even one sin. Thousands of animals would die every day. In fact, there were so many sacrifices that contemporaries In Jesus' day, report that the river ran with blood and the blood of the sacrifices ran through the temple grounds and down into the valley behind. And it stank of death. Thousands of bowls of blood being poured around the place. Thousands of animals being slain every day. And yet not one drop of blood that was spilt on that altar ever dealt with any sin. It never brought any forgiveness or any change. How could it? How can an animal die for you? The blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. Well, oh, thanks a lot, God. What was the point? <laughs> you know, what was it all for? What why on earth would God even give it then? Well, he gave it as a very gory and very graphic giant visual aid so that when Jesus came, He could be understood. It all pointed forward to the day when God would turn up as a man himself, where the true lamb of God would turn up and he would take upon himself the sins of the world. And he would come with the express purpose of dealing with our sins once and for all. And he would do it by the once and for all sacrifice of himself. He would pour out his grace and his truth on us as his blood drained from his body and he slumped to death on the cross not for his own sins he died but for our sins and it truly did deal with the wrath of God and brought forgiveness for he took our place he stood in our place and he bore it all so we wouldn't have to and that is the blessing that comes after the other blessing that is the blessing that replaces the blessing for the law of Moses was a blessing. But grace and truth come through Jesus Christ as his glory shines out from his outstretched arms as in love he dies for us. That is the hour for which he came. That is the hour in which his glory was manifest. That is the hour in which his grace and truth would burst through the darkness and bring life and forgiveness. It ends the failure of the law and of religious effort and, and trying as you might to please God by, by bowing and scraping and doing religious things and, and, and never being able to do it. It ends the ceremonies of purification and the sacrifices which never worked. And that's why the turning of the water into wine is the sign of his God. Not because he can do cool party tricks to keep the guests plied with more wine. Keep the groom free from a bit of embarrassment but because he did it in the ceremonial jars used for washing. That was set up so people to wash themselves, not not rinsing off your hands before dinner so you didn't get a bit of salmonella from the party food. That was, that was you washed your hands elsewhere for that. This was set up for specifically religious purposes, for purifying yourself before God. That's what the jars are for. But with Jesus, they're no longer needed. They were filled to the brim and they were done. Filled with the new wine of joy, the wine of celebration. I don't know if the, the steward thought that he was a prophet but he was indicating the fulfilment of Isaiah 25 and other places where the best wine is the symbol of Old Testament joy and the hope of God's kingdom which is coming and the wine will flow. And that's why also he goes straight from here down to Jerusalem and goes to town on the temple. And he takes on the religious authorities who are making an absolute killing, ripping off the people you know, who couldn't bring their own sacrifice, you know, the carpenters who never grew a lamb and things like that. And they'd, they'd say, well, you can't buy our animals with, with your own money. You've got to change your money for temple money. And then we'll tell you what the price is in that. And they would rip them off. He's absolutely incensed about that and he does something about that. But much more important, it leads to that incredible discussion about the temple and the preposterous claim of Jesus that the Jews demanded of him. What miraculous sign can you show to prove us? your, prove your authority to do this? Do a magic trick and we'll believe you. We'll be happy that you turned our tables over and lost us all this money. You know, what sign can you give? They want a party trick to impress them. Jesus' response, you want a sign? You really want a sign, I'll give you one. Tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. It's preposterous. It's outrageous. What do you you mean they say? It's taken us half a century to build this. In fact, as they said, it hadn't even been finished. That took another few years. Forty-six years that have been going so far, and, and you think you could do the same job in three days? What are you, some kind of Jedi master? Are you Luke Skywalker? You can just, whoo, you know, kind of lift the X-wing out of the water, you know, put the stones back on each other. Now, it turns out he could have if he wanted to, but uh, that's not what's really going on. Jesus is striking at the very heart of their religion. This is the place Moses had told them to come to get right with God. This is the place where the sacrifices happen. This is where sins and death are dealt with and and people are cleansed. And Jesus is quite happy for it all to come tumbling down. To be replaced by something. To be replaced by what? Look at the comment that John makes, verse 21. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. Temple destroyed, replaced by him. After he was raised from the dead, the disciples recalled what he said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus spoke. They didn't believe because of the signs, because believing because of the miracles, well, Jesus doesn't trust that. You believe what he says. You believe what the scriptures say. That's why he had come. That's what he was here to do to die for sins, to be the one true sacrifice that we need and to rise again, to conquer death, smash it in the face and give us the promise that that's our future if we're with him. Do you see? Do you understand? The old has been replaced by the new. You don't need to be good, you need to be loved. You don't need to pay God back. You need to be forgiven, boy. You don't need to straighten out your life a little bit. You need a new life. You don't need to find your way to God. He has come for you. You don't need to please God to be saved. He's already pleased with Jesus' death on your behalf. You don't need to die. You can live. You don't need to go to hell. You can go to heaven. Jesus is not interested in party tricks. Jesus is interested in you. That is why he's come. That is the hour for which he came, the hour of which his glory shone. He came to save you. The question is, will you let him? Will you let him? Now we're going to find out next week a little bit about how, how it is you respond to that as we come to John chapter 3. Uh, so it would be a great, great week to bring someone along just to just connect all the dots and things. But have you realised, have you understood, the old has gone, the new has come. You come to life in the Lord Jesus Christ. He came to save you. Will you let him? Let me pray. Father, we want to thank you for your incredible grace and truth, your glory, that you would replace the law which never worked which only left us in despair, whose sacrifice has never paid for sins, and you have given us the reality in Jesus Christ. We thank you that in his love and mercy and truthfulness and faithfulness that he was prepared to fulfil your promises and to die a grisly death, that we might live and conquer death itself, that he is the temple now which we must come to to be right with you. We thank you that he fulfils it all and it is done away with the old. Thank you that we can trust you, and that's we can't do anything to be saved, we just got to rely on you. Help us to do that. And we pray for our suburb of Ingleburn and this uh, corner of your world here in Campbelltown and the surrounding suburbs. Father, we pray for your mercy that many might come to understand the truth, they might come to life, that they wouldn't go to hell but go to heaven because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Give them eyes to see, to understand who this really is that we're dealing with. We thank you for him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.